from the studios of KPCW in Park City, Utah, this is Cool Science Radio, science and technology that's understandable. And if we can understand it, you can too. And I'm Katie Mullally. This morning, we're joined by longtime National Public Radio science correspondent Nell Greenfield-Boyce, who joins to talk with us about her new book about the intersection of life and science. It's called Transient and Strange. Then Lisa Thompson is an exhibit developer and interpretive planner at the Natural History Museum of Utah, where she developed the Nature All Around Us exhibit. Now, she has just released a new book called Wild Wasatch Front, an Urban Nature Guide. So stay tuned, these guests, when we, are, when we get right back. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Lynn Ware Peak, And I'm Katie Mullally. Our next guest has been a science correspondent for NPR for nearly two decades. And in her career as a science reporter, Nell Greenfield-Boyce has reported from inside a space shuttle, from the bottom of a coal mine, and the control room of a particle collider, among many, many other places and experiences that make her the beloved voice for science that NPR fans have heard over the years, over the decades. Now Greenfield Boyce joins us today to share her debut book. It's called Transient and Strange, in which she relates very personal stories about the intersection of science and everyday life. Now, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Well, we're so excited to have you on the show, NPR fans including both of us, have listened to you for those nearly two decades. I'd love to hear how you got into the field. You you make it very clear that you're not a scientist. You are a science journalist. And why not a scientist? Well, I thought I was going to be a scientist. I mean, certainly as a kid, I liked mucking around in the natural world and, you know, looking at bugs and doing sort of, you know, experiments the way kids do. Um, and I read about science and I loved documentaries and I just assumed that I would be a scientist. And I went to college as a science major, but the college I went to, Johns Hopkins University, um, has a, or did have a science writing program where um, you know they, they have classes where they teach people to write about science in a popular way. And honestly, it, it hadn't occurred to me until I took those classes that all the books I read and the movies I watched and the museums I went to, like somebody had actually put those together. Like that was a career. And it just made me realize that I could bring this other thing I had always loved, which was writing into the equation. And, you know, the other thing I realized about myself as I started to do more science, like, you know, doing internships and labs and stuff is that I wasn't really well suited to it. I'm not the kind of person who can stick with something for a long time and fiddle with experiments. I'm someone who likes to talk to scientists in the lunchroom and hear about the cool stuff they're doing. <laughs> mm. And so like, here was this job that amazingly let me do all the things I loved. I could learn about the world and I could write and I could talk to people. And then I could just like tell everybody else the cool stuff I got to learn. It's all about being able to entertain people at a cocktail party, right? What? Uh, yeah, really. It is quite like that, actually. And, and you know, like to take people along with you and you get to go like go out with scientists and like hear all the cool bits. But you don't actually have to be the one, you know, persevering in the snowstorm when your equipment doesn't work. And, you know, things get grim sometimes for scientists. Well, it strikes me as you're talking also that when you are a scientist and you're going through your PhD program, 
program, your focus becomes narrower and narrower. And you as a science writer and science journalist, your focus just becomes broader and broader, which in turn probably creates more excitement and curiosity that you then want to share with others, which is what you do in your book. Well, it depends. I mean, some science writers, you know, sort of make a living focusing on one field, like the brain or archaeology or something like that. But I've always been very diverse <laughs> in my interests. And I, I think this book sort of like, um, you know, illustrates that. I mean, there's essays in here on all sorts of things from black holes to fleas to tornadoes to, you know, meteorites. And, and you know, um, I, I would be it would be hard for me to write a book on any one specific subject, I think. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, our guest is Nell Greenfield-Boyce. She is NPR science correspondent and the author of the new book, Transient and Strange, Notes on the Science of Life. Well, now you say a lot of this started off by taking that class on science writing. What is the difference between, say, science writing and either, you know, journalism or creative writing? Well, I don't see any difference, honestly. Like, to me, it's all one and the same. I mean, I think that a lot of people, when they think about journalism, they think about more of a watchdog role, about, like, you know, um, ferreting out information that, you know, powerful um, forces would like to keep hidden. And I definitely enjoy that, too. Like, I, I like to file Freedom of Information Act requests, and there's no reason you can't report on science in just the same way. There's plenty of policy and, and um, issues related to science. And um, some people think of science writing more as science communication. They think of it as sort of translating complicated things into sort of everyday language. But to me, that's only been kind of a part of it. Like, I'm much more interested in the stories of of people and just sort of like human, um, you know, hum the human enterprise in all its forms. And it doesn't really matter if you're writing about sports or politics or whatever. Science is like right in there. It's It's a very, you know, people are doing it people's values, people culture, people's culture. And um, I've treated it just like reporting on anything else. I mean, in my career as a journalist, I've reported on other things. I've reported on ski jumping, you know, like it's, it's not just science, but I just happen to like science the best. Well, I think what's so great about reading your writing is that you also delve into the policy and the history behind so many topics. You're very, it's a very multidisciplinary field. We think science writing is just writing about science. But like I said, you have to know all of these other areas. Has that been a challenge for you to have to go back in and dig through the policy or find the history or maybe the personal psychology of some of these issues? I think so, because I think, you know, uh, the scientists I talk to often have this, you know, sort of real complex about communication. They have this idea that like nobody can understand what they're saying or whatever, but that is not my experience. My experience is that scientists as a whole are a pretty um, passionate bunch of people who um, are able to communicate the, the salient issues. Um, and I think that one of the things with this book I was trying to do is, you know, it is a personal book. It's I'm writing about very personal things in my life. And, you know, some of them are, are you know, things that happened to me as a kid or things that happened in my marriage. Um, and I think that one of the things I wanted to try to, like, bring home in this book is that science is not removed from us. And the sort of, you know, mindset of scientists in trying to understand the universe is not so different from what people do in their everyday lives. And so trying to make connections between these things that you might think of as being very different, whether it's black holes or whether it's, um, you know, uh, meteorology, 
I mean, you know, like, just think about meteorology, right? Like, we all exist in the weather. Like, we have ideas about weather. We have, you know, poems about weather. Um, and there, you know, there's a whole science of it. And, you know, there's no, there's no reason that we should think of it as something distant from us because the people doing it are just like us. And it has, like, actual, you know, intimate relationships with us, whether a practical matter or whether metaphorical or spiritual or poetic matters um to me it's all mixed up together i mean maybe i think about that more just because of my day job but i think it's true for everybody really i think it's something you do very well in your book especially your first chapter on tornadoes in in essence it's like you're drawing a parallel between the childlike curiosity of your son and his fascination with tornadoes and maybe how we all get fascinated with things or how perhaps we've lost that kind of curiosity that your son had to the nth degree, really. But it's so fun to read through how he's both fascinated by tornadoes and terrified at the same time, and then how that engages you. And it's this sort of mutual back and forth education. He educates you, you learn a little bit more. Can you talk about that particular chapter in terms of the curiosity? Yeah, so that was one of the first essays I wrote. So, okay, my kid, um, when he was about six years old, developed what you're calling an interest, but I would call a terror of tornadoes. And um, he became obsessed with thinking about them, especially at night. He worried that a tornado would come and blow us all away. And I should say, we live in Washington, D.C., which is not a terribly tornado-prone region of the world. But he had just learned what a tornado was. And the idea that the wind could come and randomly obliterate your whole life was just shocking to him. I mean, it, it hadn't occurred to him until he learned. And then it was just kind of like, how could we all walk around with the knowledge that everything in our life was so tenuous? You know, like, didn't wasn't that the most important thing? Shouldn't we be talking about that and thinking about that? And so, you know, as a parent, as an adult, there's certain things that you kind of like know, but you pretend you don't know, or that you live as if it's not true, like whether it's a tornado or something else, an accident, a medical diagnosis, we all know that our lives can change in an instant and it's out of our control, right? But we sort of pretend that's not true. And we sort of live our lives as if that's not true. But young people haven't learned that yet. And so, you know, that essay was about, you know, our exploring tornadoes together, learning a lot about what science knows about tornadoes, learning about the people in history that have first started to study this phenomenon, which is really hard because they just kind of touch down and disappear. It's a hard thing to study scientifically. But a lot of that essay was also me ruminating about how do you guide your kid through this? Like, as a parent, what is your role here? You know, um, and and I think that a lot of the things in the book are like that. So they're personal essays. Um, that are often prompted by very difficult questions my children ask that are on the surface about science, <laughs> but actually go much deeper into, into sort of existential questions about like, what are we all doing here? And like, what is the point of this? And like, how are we all supposed to live in this kind of like, you know, seemingly meaningless universe? One time Science Friday came to Salt Lake City and uh, they were talking a lot about dinosaurs, of course, because Utah is very rich 
in uh, in fossils and paleontology. And I, at the end, they allowed members from the audience to come up and they were by and large, well, about 80% children. The questions that they had were mind blowing, what they knew about dinosaurs. And it's funny as I was reading about your son and his fascination and terror regarding tornadoes, it made me think about that same, you know, I, I wouldn't have thought tornadoes. I see children and their interest with dinosaurs all the time and how we as parents go, oh yeah, that's cool. And then that's about it. But you, can you explain how you go further into um, either stoking the curiosity or helping to tamper it a bit? Well, dinosaurs are interesting, aren't they? I mean, it's interesting the things that we think are sort of appropriate subject matter for children to study in detail, right? Like unconsciously or not, we present this material to them. It's not like, you know, they just pick dinosaurs. There's all sorts of cultural things leading them to that. But I do think it's interesting that they become so fascinated with something that is extinct. Do you know what I mean? Like dinosaurs convey something menacing, right? They are large and potentially scary um, beings, but they're also not around anymore. And I think they they are in this liminal space that is really interesting to children where they're real and sort of not real. And this idea that this whole world just kind of is no longer here um, it raises interesting questions about our world <laughs> and how permanent it is. And so, you know, many of the things that children get interested in are, they are scientific and they are factual, but they're also deeper than that. And children, I think, are very scientific in their approach to things, right? I mean, that's kind of a cliche, the child is scientist, but it really is amazing to watch them and the way they fearlessly interrogate the world and everyone and just will have no qualms about like diving into something and taking it apart. And they just like, it, it's inspirational, honestly, to me to see the way they are willing to like get right down in it. And so as a parent, when you're confronted with this, it can be hard, you know, like the questions they ask, the, the things they want to know. I mean, I remember you know, uh, at one point we were in the grocery store, this this isn't in the book, but you know, my children were interested in the fish display, like in the seafood section, and they wanted to buy a fish so they could take it home and just like explore the fish. And I was like, oh, okay, sure, whatever. And my little daughter like went around clutching this herring for a while and she was like, she wanted to sleep with it. She wondered if it could love her. Do you know what I mean? Like all these questions. How do you answer a question like that? You know, can it, can it love me? It's like, uh, that's really hard. And so, like, for me, the 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 line between like interest in the natural world and then also trying to understand these much deeper questions, it's a really thin, thin, thin line, <laughs> at least for me. Well, now, you know, it's so it's so easy for kids to be curious about the world and engage. But as adults, we lose so much of that innate curiosity. But what's great about all of your writing, it's like, oh, I haven't thought about the world record for the largest snow crystal or the inside of a coal mine. Do you have any tips for adults to keep that curiosity going and how to maybe bring it back up from a quelled state? Yeah, I mean, I think in my reporting, you know, just going along with the general theme that science is not something, you know, separate from you. In my reporting, whenever I think about a story, I try to think about like, what is the human story. Do you know what I mean? Like, 
you know, this story is not about a spacecraft, right? Like a spacecraft is like a bunch of metal, right? Like it, it's just a, a collection of atoms. <laughs> so like what, what is it about the spacecraft that is a, is something that is more human and also something that's kind of universal? Like if you look at the theater, there are all these kind of like universal themes that keep kind of like coming up again and again that power drama because they're things that everybody can relate to, whether it's conflict between parents and children, whether it's people sort of like, you know, fighting against the limits of their own mortality. You know, you could just go on and on. You could come up with like, you know, like searching for lost love. Like there are all these things that, you know, appear again and again in fiction and history and that actually like play out in people's own lives. And so for me, I just do that. <laughs> Only the lens I use is science. And so, you know, uh, everything in the piece, in the everything in the book tries to take that approach. It's just sort of like assuming at the outset that people aren't necessarily interested in meteorites, you know, for example. Um, they're just rocks. They're just rocks that fell to the ground. And most people couldn't tell you the difference between a meteorite and a rock they just found in their driveway, right? Um, but people are interested in aging parents and like watching their parents get older and dealing with that. And so when you combine the two things, I think that people can learn about the science, but sometimes the science like gives them some things to reflect on that help them in their sort of more, more personal life. Well, speaking of the book near the end, you start talking about your husband's kidney disease and the possible genetic, um, carry on to your own kids. With all of your science reporting and all of your knowledge about these ideas, did does that make it harder to actually navigate through life? Because you know of all the possibilities, good and bad. I mean, is too much information maybe not so good? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So that last essay deals with my um, husband's family, which has a genetic kidney disease, where there's a really um, high rate of passage to the next generation. And so we um talked among ourselves and tried different things to see if we could avoid passing that disease on now i should say that my husband and i really disagreed about that and you know what was interesting to me about that whole experience interesting i say <laughs> you know it was more than interesting it was like you know harrowing and fraught and very painful at times is that i had actually done quite a lot of reporting on um genetic testing and genetic selection of embryos and so you would think that i would be like ideally placed to grapple with all of those issues but actually no going through it personally was quite a different experience and um you know i found myself reflecting a lot not just on what i had reported and um you know what what i was going through personally but also the whole history you know i mean again it's like people may look at genetic testing as if it's you know sort of exists now and ever was but there's a whole history that has created the world we live in now and i think it's important to think about that history and to you know think about like ways in which you may be um affected by things that happened you know 100 years <laughs> before now a hundred years, it really isn't that long. Um, and, you know, uh, things are still playing out. And I think it's important to be aware of that. Our guest is Nell Greenfield-Boyce. She is a science correspondent for NPR News, and we've all heard her for many, many years, but she's written a debut book called Transient and Strange, Notes on the Science of Life. Nell, Transient and strange is a, a term, I guess, that uh, you borrowed 
Can you tell us about where you got it and why you named the book? So that um, was actually a suggestion by my editor at WW Norton, um, Matt Wyland. And um, it's from a Walt Whitman poem about meteors. And so um, it was written in the 1860s and he was talking about this meteor procession that had sort of flashed in the sky um, and then was gone. And, you know, he talks about the meteors being transient and strange. And then he says, but but what am I, you know, and, and what is this book? Like another, you know, transient and strange thing that will just flash and be gone. And to me, that was an appropriate title because all of the things I write about in this book, all the personal things that I then look at through a lens of science, they're all things that happened to me that were brief things in my life that happened and passed but they were unsettling. And, you know, I still think about them. And, you know, I also think there's a pretty strong theme of sort of like, what is, what is life about, you know, like running through the whole thing. And, and I do think that, um, you know, there is something very poignant in thinking about um, how ephemeral we are in the vastness of the universe. And we all have to grapple with that one way or another. Mm, absolutely. Well, going back to meteorites and your father um, ailing in the hospital, and he noticed this this meteorite on a string <laughs> that you had around your neck. Maybe it wasn't a string. And you go on to tell the story of how you had given him a moon rock for Christmas that was just kind of thrown in the, the junk drawer, as we call it. You know, And your mom said, oh, what is this? And you told her, oh, okay, and throws it back in. Um, how do you, how do you share and engage, you know, someone like your parents to make them excited about what you're excited about? Boy, I have to tell you, like the things I'm interested in, a lot of people are not interested in. Like, uh, like I tried very hard to get my children interested in slime molds for a while. And like, that was no, it was a no go. I mean, they make fun of me, right? Like in that, in that essay about meteorites, at one point I get very interested in trying to find a micrometeorite. So, you know, dust from outer space is constantly falling to Earth and you can find it. You can go looking on rooftops and use magnets to pull out the metal pieces and try to find it. So I spent a long time trying to do that in my kitchen with a microscope, looking at all this crud from my gutter. And my children thought this was just ridiculous. Like they were not interested in all at all. I get that question a lot. It's like, how do you get your children interested in science? It's like, they are not interested in what I am doing. Come on, they're kids, right? Like everything that I'm doing is almost by definition lame, right? <laughs> I believe at some level they are affected by all the various like, you know, like things I get into. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I remember I interviewed an astronaut um, you know, who who back in like the 1970s would talk to his kids from space using a connection through NASA. And he remembers overhearing one of the kids being like, oh yeah, you know, nice talking to you, dad. And then he'd say to his mom, like, can we order that pizza now, right? Like he's much more interested in the pizza, is much more immediate and real. So yeah, I don't know, I I can't is the bottom line. I can't get people interested in what I'm interested in. I, I just try to stay out of their way and let them pursue their own interests. Well, Nell, I know that we go to your your column on NPR to find out the latest science news, but where do you go to find all of these new diverse topics? 
Oh gosh, you know, I read a lot of science journals. Uh, we get a lot of journals provided to us. So I read the abstracts, I read the table of contents. Scientists post their reports up on various, you know, online um, uh, archives. I look through those. I do social media. There's a big, you know, scientists like to talk to each other on social media. So I follow a lot of them. You know, I'll go to conferences. And then sometimes I just get interested in stuff. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't have to be from a from a lab report. Like sometimes I just get curious about something and and will end up doing it. Sometimes like stuff that comes up in my personal life will make me call a scientist. And next thing you know, I'm writing a story on, you know, who knows what. Um, so it's really varies. It really, really varies. And I'm lucky that NPR gives me this freedom to pursue things that may not have any direct application to people's lives. And I'm also fortunate that the NPR audience seems very interested in things that may be of no practical use to them, but are nonetheless uh, uh, intellectually stimulating, let's say. Case in point, this the story about the snowflakes and the 15-inch the snowflake in Missoula, Montana, back in 1857 or whatever. Um, well, our guest is, has been Nell Greenfield-Boyce, and her book is Transient and strange notes on the science of life. Nell, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining us on Cool Science Radio. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. And I'm Katie Mullally. Our next guest, Lisa Thompson, is an exhibit developer and interpretive planner at the Natural History Museum of Utah, where she developed the Nature All Around Us exhibit. Now she has just released a new book. It's called Wild Wasatch Front. It's an urban nature guide, and it just made its debut at the Women in Nature and Science Celebration at the museum. Wild Wasatch Front invites locals and tourists to discover the unexpected nature thriving within our cities and towns and provides a fresh perspective on communities all the way from Provo up to Ogden. Lisa Thompson, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you. And I have to say, I was just at the Natural History Museum last week. It is just such an amazing building and all the exhibits are wonderful. And there's a traveling exhibit on Jane Goodall. And I'm wondering if that sort of tied into um, international women in science celebration. Absolutely. Having um, the Jane Goodall exhibit here was certainly an inspiration for that celebration. Well, Lisa, you must personally love to explore sort of what we would call, quote unquote, our backyard and find wherever you are, those green spaces and nature and things like that. And I, I'm the, the person who's guilty of saying, I'm going to go away to all of our national parks and that's where I'm going to explore or some little known area, corner of Utah. But I love that you're just doing it right in our backyard. What is your inspiration? Well, I think it really started with the Nature All Around Us exhibit and a desire to um, better understand how we were, how people in Utah were thinking about nature. We started off by asking some of our visitors where they experienced nature and their responses were very, usually very similar to yours. And I think in part it's because we're so spoiled here in Utah that many of us have really easy access to those spaces that we traditionally think of as natural. 
And um, we would probe a little further and ask people if they um, ever experienced nature in their own neighborhood. And some people would say, oh, yes, when they reflected upon it a little further. But some people told us as well that um, nature and cities actually were kind of opposites. They couldn't coexist. And uh, or, or some people said, well, the nature in cities is kind of fake. It's not real nature. And so that led us then on this journey to help people discover the, the nature that we coexist with the every, every day. And um, the, the wonderful thing about that is if you begin to perceive nature in that way, you can connect with nature in your everyday life. And it's not something that you have to you know, make a special trip to, uh, to experience. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, our guest is Lisa Thompson. She is an exhibit developer and interpretive planner at the Natural History Museum of Utah and just released her book, Wild Wasatch Front. Well, Lisa, let's talk about developing these exhibits. because That sounds like a, what, a really fun job. And this, it, it, to me, it makes, it, it makes me realize that when we see these exhibits, if they're well done, all of the details are there. All of the nature is included in the floor and the trees. What do you find the most, what's the most challenging thing about creating these exhibits to get them right? Yeah, for me, always the most challenging part is the, all the stories we have to leave out. <laughs> there are um, so many amazing stories that we hear from our community and discover through talking, you know, with experts and with, um, you know, uh, people, you know, just who have short stories to share with us and then condensing that down and distilling it into an experience that can be you know enjoyed by visitors and just doesn't become overwhelming is a big challenge so as you're building these exhibits there's all this nature around us do people come into the museum and see the details you've put in and maybe question well that's not really in my neighborhood that's not really what i see in nature do people question the reality of what nature is especially when they look at it at the museum most people are actually just really excited to discover these connections and to, uh, for example, we had the first part of the exhibit, um, which was um, a, a representation of a backyard that is um, on the west side of Salt Lake City, where an amazing citizen scientist had discovered over 200 species in her own backyard. And so the challenge there was for people to do a scavenger hunt and try to find the little, you know, creatures and plants that we had hidden in that area. And for most people, it was just such an eye-opening experience to think, you know, even in a small yard on the west side of Salt Lake City, there's this incredible biodiversity. And it's really about, you know, looking at different seasons or different times of days to understand, you know, the, the incredible cycles of nature that you could see playing out there. I love to hear that story. Again, as you say, many of many of us who lives live in cities wouldn't like you say it's it's antithesis to um, nature living in a city, but that's so untrue. And so you divide your book into three parts, and a lot of it is about how to inspire our own curiosity and maybe sharpen our observation skills. And that goes for anyone, city, country urban, rural. Can you tell us more? Yeah, I mean, um, you don't need a lot of sophisticated equipment to, to explore your urban nature. It's really just about slowing down, 
um, being curious. Um, if you want to bring, you know, binoculars or um, um, some kind of magnifier with you, something to extend the power of your eyes, but also just be quiet and listen and just take a moment and observe, you know, with all your senses, what's around you. I think of my 84-year-old mother who, granted, she lives in a very beautiful area in Montana, on a little lake, but one of the things that she has always done is charted the daily occurrences on the lake, like when it freezes up, when it thaws again, when it, uh, after a long winter, what date did, can you finally take the rowboat out? You know, all of this kind of thing. And I think it really tunes her into what's going on on her lake. And so I'm wondering about, you know, certain activities and things like that that we might do that are included in your book. Yeah, that is such a beautiful practice. It sounds to me like your mother is uh, a citizen scientist, that she's following in a long tradition of people who don't have formal scientific training, but are yet making really important scientific observations about the world around them. And one of the essays in the book is about um, citizen science. It's sometimes also now called community science. And it's particularly important for helping scientists understand the nature of urban areas um, because so much of the land is private and scientists can't easily access it. And so for, um, for ecologists to understand what creatures and plants are living in cities, um, it's, we really depend on citizen science to get out there and make observations and share data. And the museum runs um, a variety of citizen science projects that are really easy to get involved in. Um, there's a whole page on the museum's website where you can learn about how you can contribute observations about fox squirrels or European firebugs. And there's um, whole new programs studying um, um, ant and mosquito DNA that you can be a part of. So it's something that everybody can get involved in. Lisa, when you were talking earlier about using all of our senses. I think a lot of us forget that nature is around us, not just in the animals we see and the tracks, maybe the tracks that we find in the snow. It's what we hear, it's what we smell. How can people hone those experiences or those senses to be really more attuned, maybe to, to drone out the, the traffic and the sirens, to listen in for that bird or listen in for that, that scratching that you might hear from an insect. How can people really practice that? Yeah, I think it's just kind of being mindful. And I mean, I think one thing I notice now, I um, go for, uh, try to walk my dog every day in my neighborhood. And I often see people now with their um, AirPods, you know, with headphones in, and I think, oh, you're missing hearing that bird song I just um, heard. So maybe it's just unplugging from our devices for a moment and taking a moment to, to experience you know all all of those uh sensory inputs in the environment but i will um uh, one really cool tool that people can use if they're interested in better uh, identifying bird songs that they're hearing is a free app called the merlin app from the um the cornell lab of ornithology 
um, I am a very, very beginning birder and I use this all the time. If you hear a bird singing and you um, open the app and push the record button, it will start listening to the bird song that you're hearing and then give you uh, suggestions for the what bird this might be. And then you can um, use those suggestions to you know compare the call that you just heard to some of the recorded calls of that particular species and see if they match up. Well, when you were writing the book, Wild Wasatch Front, was there something that really surprised you or truly got you excited? Yeah, well, one of the things that emerged as I started writing all the um, different descriptions of the species was how many of these species we have really long-term relationships with. I think when we think of... Um, plants and animals that our lives are really intertwined with. We usually think of domesticated plants and animals or our pets, but there's so many of the creatures and plants that live with us in cities are there because we have, our lives are really intertwined. My, I think my favorite example is house sparrows. So house sparrows are incredibly common little birds and have been on a journey with us for the past 12,000 years. Their, their habitat is basically humanity. They um, only live in places where people are, are, there's either a town or a farm. And if a town is abandoned, house sparrows don't live there anymore. About 12,000 years ago, when we were um, just beginning to farm, house sparrows figured out that uh, that grain that we were growing would be a great source of food and they could stop migrating and they could just hang out with us. And the connection even is genetic. Um, we both evolved um, a similar gene that allows us to process uh, starch that is uh, you know, a part of an agricultural grain-based diet. And the house sparrows, I love that they just continue to figure us out. You might see them um, darting around a big box store or at the airport. And that's because they've learned how to operate the sensors that uh, that um, open the sliding doors. They'll either uh, flutter in front of that sensor or perch above it and, and um, dip down in to break the beam. And so they just keep figuring us out. You know, if we develop a new source of food for them, they're gonna, they're gonna figure out how to access it. I find that really interesting to be able to chart sort of the interaction between species and humans and the interdependency um, that we probably didn't know existed before. I, I had never heard that about the sparrows. That's that's great. And any other species like that that you know of? Sure. Well, I mean, the common dandelion is a species that, you know, uh, has been cultivated for millennia. It's one that I think we just tend to overlook now, but every part of the plant is edible, um, super nutritious. It's still grown in some places. You know, people are... Um, pulling, you know, dandelions out of their lawn and discarding them, but then you can go to the store and pay a premium price to buy dandelion greens. Um, they were valued as um, a garden flower. They were grown for their beauty. There are poems written about how lovely they are. Um, there's a brochure that was promoting uh, Central Park um, that gushed about how beautiful it was because the dandelions in the lawn made it look like a green lake with stars reflected in it. And it was the you know rise of the modern um, 
cultivated green lawn that kind of changed the cultural perception. And people decided that dandelions were an interruption to that lawn and therefore undesirable. Um, but I think one interesting thing that's happened out of that is that um, kids can have a really close relationship with dandelions. Adults don't care how many they pick. And so now there's, you know, all kinds of uh, rhymes and games, you know, you can uh, pop the dandelion's head off, you can make a dandelion chain. So it's a plant that kids get to have close relationships with. I love that story. That's a good one. You know, wanting to ask you about urban parks. So, you know, it, there's no doubt that people who live along the Wasatch Front go up Mill Creek and they go up Immigration Canyon. That you've got your canyons there and we on the Wasatch Back obviously have lots of, you know, natural spaces. But if you are looking at a real, a true urban park, can you pick out one that you really love and tell us about it? Sure. Well, in the book, we feature, you know, 21 um, places where you can go explore urban nature um, along the Wasatch Front. And I think one of my favorite spots to explore is the Jordan River. Um, there are there's an incredible trail system along the river um, and then just such um, a diversity of wildlife. It's the river is part of the the important um, flyway, the Pacific Migratory Flyway um, that birds depend on and, you know, are bopping, you know, between Utah Lake and the, and the Great Salt Lake as well. So it's a great place to to go and observe birds. Um, and there's tons of plant life to explore there as well. Um, you know, everything from, you know, um, your cattails and your phragmites, you know, uh, to uh, tons of different little, I call them my urban wildflowers that you can see there. Um, and I think it's a place that also reflects the story, a common story of urban rivers, which is that typically they are places that, um, are channelized, modified. The Jordan River in particular became a dumping ground, a place, you know, where, you know, you could put industrial waste. Um, and um, it became, a you know, a, a neglected and degraded place over the years. But in the past uh, 20 to 30 years, I think urban rivers have um, are, have really, the story about them has changed. Communities are seeing them as an asset. Um, the Jordan River, there's been so much effort into, um, you know, restoring the habitat there um, and making it a place where people who live in the center of the valley and don't have as easy access to the canyons, this becomes, you know, their place where they can um, access nature easily. So it's really important um, to community health to be able to have those places where people, you know, within a few minutes of their home can go and experience nature. Lisa, a lot of the um, nature that we're talking about is typically spring, summer, when we can see the green lawn and the flowers. However, today it's actually snowing quite a bit and there's not any green out there. So when I used to teach skiing, we had so much fun with the kids looking for different animal tracks in the snow, and especially kids that were coming from urban areas. We're just thrilled by the fact that, oh my gosh, there's a there's a rabbit track, there's a porcupine track. But what can families or even just all of us do in the winter time to look for more life around us? Because again, I look out and it's just white and I might see a couple of birds and I forget that there is a thriving ecosystem still in the snow. So what do I look for? 
Yes, so I think tracks are, like you mentioned, are um, a great thing to be looking for. I think the winter can be a beautiful time to observe trees. Um, I think especially um, deciduous trees that have lost their leaves, you can really um, see the beautiful um, variation in the branch structure and the form of the trees and just you know to remember that just because it's leafless it's not lifeless and you can um look for you know is there a cavity in this tree is there someone nesting there down here in the um valley we often see the uh the drays which are the nests of leaves that the fox squirrels have built up in the branches as well uh so that's a, a taking a look at your your uh, urban trees can be a great wintertime activity I know another good wintertime activity is planning for spring and planning for the flowers in the yard. What can we do to help bring in more nature into our yards? I mean, it seems like, I mean, grass is natural and a lot of the store-bought flowers that we plant because they're pretty are natural, but it seems like it's, are they pushing aside the true nature and how can we best plan? How do we plan for a yard that really invites nature back? Oh, what a wonderful question. So we have a, an essay in the book that is about creating backyard habitats. And, you know, um, um, private yards are about a third of the green spaces in any city. And so the, to the extent, you know, if everybody was making a little bit of habitat in their yard, that would make a real difference for the, the creatures that live in cities. And it's a fairly basic recipe. Um, and if you can do something to provide food, water, shelter, and places to raise young in your yard, you've created a little bit of habitat. And it doesn't need to be, um, you know, it could be something that you do on a balcony. If that's all that you have available, you know, if you could put out some flowering plants that would attract bees and pollinators, other pollinators, you know, be food for them, a bird feeder as a source of food for some birds, um, a little shallow dish of water where birds could come and drink and, and bathe to, to clean their feathers. Um, you know, you've just created a little teeny bit of habitat for, for those creatures in a city. If you have a larger space to work with, think about the plantings that you can put um, in, in that space. Um, for birds, um, if you can create a structure so that there are things, you know, low down at the mid-level and up high where different kinds of birds can find the shelter that they need. And then plant things that produce seeds um, or berries um, or for, you know, insects having flowers for your pollinators. That's really helpful, too. And then... Um, there's uh, simple things that you can do to promote um, insects as well. One of them is just don't be super tidy. Leave a little leaf litter around in your yard. That's where um, insects can overwinter. And um, there's some important things you can do to support uh, bees as well. We're, we're used to thinking about honeybees. Those are the, the, the typical bees that we know about. But um, in Utah, I think there's almost a thousand species of wild bees. This is a really special place for wild bees. And um, most of them don't live in colonies. They're solitary. And um, about 75% of them live in the ground. They make little nests in the ground. So all they need is a bare spot of dirt where they can where they can make a nest. The other 25% are cavity nesters. And so you can make a bee box for them, which is simply a, a set of hollow tubes that you can put together. Or you can buy them at the store too. And those um, cavity nesting bees would really appreciate a, a little place to hang out in your yard as well. 
Well, Lisa Thompson is an exhibited, excuse me, Lisa Thompson is an exhibit developer at the Natural History Museum of Utah, and she has just released a new book. It's called Wild Wasatch Front, and even though it's called Wild Wasatch Front, Lisa, there is so much in your book that really can... It, we we can practice it here in the Wasatch back as well. So kudos to you. And the book is now available at the Natural History Museum, but it has, when is it its actual release that people might be able to buy it on, you know, online or at maybe Dolly's bookstore here in Park City? Yeah, um, it so it is officially available at online and at, you know, bookstores across the Wasatch Front. Wonderful. And I do think, I'll just mention this, it would be great to have you come up to Park City to uh, do a little book signing. We would love that. I would love that too. Um, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us on Cool Science Radio and best of luck. It's a wonderful book. Thank you. You've been listening to Cool Science Radio here on KPCW in Park City. In March, we will have a fascinating discussion about orbital orbital space junk and how the burning up of these old satellites is really causing a lot of problems in our ionosphere. And then we'll be joined by someone out of the UK to talk about the science of weird, let's just say, stuff. And to hear any of our previous interviews, please go to kpcw.org and go under the shows tab for Cool Science Radio.